Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This is an NBC News special report. Here's Savannah Guthrie. Good morning, everyone. It is early in the U.S., 10 a.m. Saturday morning here in London, and the United Kingdom has begun another day of mourning, two days after the death of Queen Elizabeth. And at this hour, not far from where we stand, That's we are about to witness Majesty. history, an ancient ceremony never before televised, what's known as the Accession Council, taking place not far from where we stand at St. James Palace. And it is here that in a few moments, Charles will be officially proclaimed king and then address the council and take an oath of service. This is a time-honored royal ritual going back to the 1700s, but for the first time, it has been open to the public and broadcast for the world to see it is under way at this hour. On Friday, yesterday, we heard from the king for the very first time a pre-recorded address at Buckingham Palace that aired throughout the UK and around the world. Queen Elizabeth was a life well lived, a promise with destiny kept, and she is mourned most deeply in her passing. That promise of lifelong service I renew to all today. The king also got down to business, announcing his wife Camilla will now be queen consort and bestowing a new title upon his son, Prince William, the Prince of Wales, the very role that Charles himself held for more than 50 years. And William's wife, Kate, now Princess of Wales, of course, a name steeped in meaning, the role last held by William's mother, Princess Diana. And here at Buckingham Palace this morning, the crowds, the memorials to the queen have been growing since the Where moment it was announced that she had died on Thursday. So we want to get right to NBC News senior international correspondent Keir Simmons, who's watching all of these events unfold. We are watching history this morning, Keir. We really are, Savannah. What we're seeing is tradition and change both at the same time, because as you rightly say, this is an ancient ceremony going back hundreds of years, and yet we are seeing it for the first time, televised for the first time. Here's what's happening right now, Savannah. The Accession Council is meeting, as you say, at St. James's Palace, just around the corner of from uh, here. This is all happening in this small royal area, if you like, uh, of London. It is a group including a group called the Privy Council, whose, whose role is, they're politicians, their role is to advise the king. What they're doing right now, and of course, the king is King Charles already, so this is ceremonial, but the British Constitution is based on ceremony, on history, and so it is important. And what they're doing right now is deciding who they want to be king, deciding that they want uh, Charles to be the king. Uh, they will announce that the queen is dead, announce that uh, Charles is the next king, and then uh, Charles will be invited in uh, and he will make a personal statement. Then Savannah, later today, and you just heard them, God save the king. So they have decided as we are speaking that they have a new king. And then just in around an hour's time, out on the balcony there of Buckingham Palace, uh, they will read the declaration. There will be a gun salute. We just saw the guns uh, come, come by. Uh, and it is a, a formal day, a historic day, and goodness me, a very personal day for King Charles. Yes, and here we're seeing Prince William now the Prince of Wales uh, attending the Privy Council as well. And as you mentioned, after this meeting of the Privy Council, formally naming Charles King, we will then uh, have a, a speech from the king himself, from the king himself. And I want to turn to Wilfred Frost, who's with me now, an NBC News contributor. By tradition, Charles became king at the moment of his mother's passing. Uh, we, we know he was in Balmoral. He may well have been at her very bedside when she closed her eyes and went into the next world, he became king. But this makes it official. What is the importance of a ceremony like this? Yes, yeah, so as you said, became king immediately and won't in fact be crowned king until the coronation, which is probably a, at least a year away. 
but this proclamation has two parts of historical significance. The first, of course, is hundreds of years ago, we weren't in a 24-hour news cycle, uh, and it was needed to spread the news of the passing of the previous monarch and the appointment of the new monarch, not just around the country, but uh, around the world. And once this takes place, it kicks into gear lots of those old-school ways of getting information uh, out. The, the other point is that uh, hundreds of years ago, when the king and queen still had hard power, although they ruled autocratically, obviously, not democratically, they would listen to some key advisers, their key council, their prime council, i.e. the privy council, as we've heard Keir uh, refer to it. And this ceremony was there to symbolise the fact that these are the key advisers that this new monarch will at least listen to a little bit. Now, that doesn't have relevance today because the Privy Council is more ceremonial uh, and carries uh, a sort of honour if you get appointed to the Privy Council. It's as dignitaries, of course, a former defence minister. No you have ministers in Parliament are there. I think the new Prime Minister. That's the kind of people that make up this Privy Council this morning. Indeed, and there's currently about 700-plus members of the Privy Council, and uh, they all carry this title of the Right Honourable uh, ahead of their name. Um, but uh, there's only room for about 150 to 200, so it's actually been uh, quite a debate behind the scenes amongst those echelons of only 700 people fighting to, to get a seat there today. All right. I want to bring in British historian Andrew Roberts. And I'm so struck, Andrew, by the continuity and what we see unfolding here. And it's really encapsulated in this phrase, the queen is dead, long live the king. There is no interruption in the royal line. Precisely. And what you're seeing here is the British um, uh, governing class, essentially, uh, rubber stamping the decision that it should be uh, Charles III. And uh, so you're seeing ministers. You've seen already the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, the Lord President of the Council has signed. You have a, um, a, a whole slew of bishops um, and um, high sheriffs. It's also attended by the high commissioners of the uh, Crown Commonwealth realms. So um, it's a it's a coming together of the uh, of the nation Ordering and the Commonwealth. There we are, and it's also in two parts, and that's and the, and the first part is about to be over, and uh, King Charles is going to come in for the second. Andrew, thank you. Uh, we'll stand by with you and also bring in our royal expert for NBC News, Daisy McAndrew. And Daisy, let's talk a moment while we have uh, these, these moments to, to spare before uh, the king addresses this council. What did you make of his first address to the nation that was pre-recorded and played last night around the UK? I thought it was very impressive and of course many people were looking to see what kind of picture he was going to paint of his reign, what sort of king he was going to be. And I think he clearly answered some of those queries and questions. He's going to be somebody who's going to wear his heart on his sleeve. In the past, his, uh, his quite emotional personality has sometimes been criticised, but I think for this day and age, it's going to fit rather well. Less of the stiff upper lip and more of the speaking from the heart. And I think we saw that uh, last night. I also think it was very significant, Savannah, that he not only made uh, William and Kate Prince and Princess of Wales, but mentioned Harry and Meghan specifically by name and talked about uh, his love for them, again, you know, being quite emotional and, and really portraying himself as a family man as well as a king. Dizzy, in just a few moments, we will see the new king walk into that room at St. James Palace and address the council. That's just moments away. The official business part one of this council meeting is underway. Part two is when the king addresses the room. Prince William is there. Camilla, queen consort, is there as well, among other many dignitaries. I want to turn to Vanity Fair's royal editor, Katie Nichol, also an NBC News contributor. And Katie will pick up where Daisy left off. We are starting to see hints of how the new king may conduct himself at least in terms of the public. I was so struck that not only was his first stop Buckingham Palace, makes sense, that's his home, but that he stopped outside yesterday to meet and greet and walk about with the public who had came to pay their respects. I, I think you're absolutely right. And the words, the people's king, came immediately to my mind. I was there with that crowd. And it was amazing because we didn't know how, I didn't know how they were going to react 
And this was their first sighting of their new king, a nation who is in mourning, a nation who has only ever known one woman as their head of state, Her Majesty the Queen. And yet, in that heartbeat, everything changed and there were, there were cheers. Um, so as much as this was a nation in mourning, this was also a nation welcoming their new king. And you could see almost Charles's relief. There was a smile on his face, completely different to, to when he lost his father, the Duke of Edinburgh, when there were tears on his face. I'm not suggesting for a second that he's not deeply sad about the loss of his mother. Of course he is. But I think he took a sense of relief that he was being welcomed by this crowd, he even accepted a kiss from one member of the crowd. And, and the fact that he went to greet that crowd and see those floral tributes before undertaking his most important constitutional duty, which was meeting the prime minister, I think speaks volumes about the king that we can expect him to be. Daisy, thank you. And if you're watching along with us, just want to say this is the first time this ancient ritual dating back to the 1700s has ever before been televised. And you see among the Privy Council perhaps some faces you recognize, former British prime ministers. I see Gordon Brown, Boris Johnson, Theresa May, uh, David Cameron, among others, who are there for this formalizing of what has been true since Queen Elizabeth passed on Thursday. Prince Charles has become King Charles III. Queen Consort Camilla at his side. And in just a few moments, we will see the king enter the room and he will address this council for the very first time. Keir, as a longtime Londoner, what do these rituals mean to the people? As you mentioned, and after this, we're going to see a, a proclamation read from the balcony of Buckingham Palace. All of yeah. this pageantry, what does it mean in terms of this transition? I think it's the bedrock of our society, of, of our civil society, of our political society, of our social society, honestly, uh, Savannah. As I mentioned in the open, we don't have a written constitution. These things are just known. They are tradition. And so these traditions are very, very important. Just to talk a little bit about what we're about to see uh, with King Charles, uh, that truism, first impressions count, uh, it is true. And it does matter how uh, King Charles conducts himself here and how he conducts himself yesterday in that televised address and I think you're gonna hear him were you'll hear the words you're gonna hear are gonna be carefully chosen just as they were yesterday and just picking through that that speech that televised address to the nation yesterday and it was gonna be fascinating to hear how he adds to that today uh, he everything he said had a meaning my life will change Read between the lines, that means I'm not going to be the Prince of Wales that I was intervening quite so much in, in issues. I am going to rise above that and be more of a so sovereign. Uh, announcing that uh, uh, William and Kate will be Prince and Princess of Wales, he knew full well the meaning of uh, Kate becoming the Princess of Wales and, and of course, uh, what that meant in relation to uh, his late uh, and former wife, uh, Princess uh, Diana. Uh, talking about uh, his new wife, who is there now at the session council, uh, the Queen Consort Camilla, and, and describing his love for her, kind of really saying to the British people, let me introduce you to uh, your new queen, uh, and I hope that you love her as much as as I uh, love, love her. That message for, for Harry and Meghan, that reconciliation or hope for reconciliation, wanting to try and put the divisions of the past behind him. Every single thing he said yesterday, he has been thinking about for a long time and he thought about very carefully. And historians will look at it closely in, in the years and frankly decades to come and we'll talk about what, what he meant. And I think that's what we're going to see again at Savannah uh, now when he steps in uh, to this room uh, for the accession council. And it really will be fascinating, as Daisy says, to see how much of it is formal and how much of it is personal, whether he continues and pays another tribute to uh, his, his late uh, mom, the, the Queen, because it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, in many ways British culture has changed, British society has changed. And, you know, Savannah, we've learned a lot from you guys, <laughs> how, to, how to talk about our emotions a little bit more and to see him in this room and, and doing that, the mix of, of the formal uh, and the personal, uh, that will again send this double message. Uh, this is tradition, 
but we are also modernizing. We are still changing because that is always the challenge for a king or a queen and the challenge that the queen handled so deftly, which is to look as if nothing has changed, but actually things are quietly changing. And just to take you inside this ritual we are observing for the first time, members of the Privy Council have been filing into another room. It appears that part one of this meeting is over and part two is set to begin. That is when we expect to hear from King Charles III. I want to bring in Daisy McAndrew to pick up on what Kira was saying. As formal as this is, as ancient a ritual as this is, as I understand it, Daisy, it is not one of those formal proclamations where every incoming king or queen is made to read the same speech, the same form of words. They can bring their own personality to it, and they have in the past. Well, I think that's right, but it's so interesting to compare what's happening today to what happened yesterday when we saw King Charles really laying out his stall. Today is much more traditional. I mean, St. James's Palace is, is the most senior of the palaces. It was built by Henry VIII in 1531. And at dawn this morning, you've already, I'm sure, shown pictures of the balcony where the proclamation will happen. And the central window has to be removed for this event. So can you imagine the poor workmen and, and women who are having to take out this centuries-old window in the middle of the night this morning. Then they had to lay red carpet um, all over that sort of flat roof balcony that there is. And it's, it's an astonishing event, really. And also just looking, as you were saying, Savannah, all those former prime ministers, but actually they have had such a close relationship with the royal family over the years. I suspect in some ways it was quite comforting for Prince William, for instance, to see John Major there. When William and Harry lost their mother, Princess Anna, John Major was brought in as a sort of official guardian to look after the interests of the young princes. And I know from talking to people around them that they really formed a very close bond. So I think William will have liked to have seen uh, his old friend and mentor, John Major, there. Then you look at Tony Blair, who was also there this morning. Of course, remember back to 1997 when Princess Diana died. It was Tony Blair and the advisers around him. He was in number 10 Downing Street at the time as Prime Minister. He was the one, or they were the team, that really saw things were going wrong, badly wrong for the royal family. They were losing support. There were front page headlines saying to the Queen, do you care? Show us you care. And it really was the, the, the fact that Tony Blair and his advisers, people at like Alistair Campbell at the time, spotted that the Queen was in trouble and they intervened, quite impertinent really at the time, and said, you need to come down from Balmoral, you need to lower the royal standard, the flag at Buckingham Palace, you need to come and talk directly to the people. And it was really Tony Blair who convinced the royal family to do that. And so in many ways, people were saying at the time, he saved the reputation of the royal family. So I think it's fascinating today to see all those historical political figures taking their place at this really extraordinary day. And as you keep saying, we've never seen it televised. So for royal nerds like myself, Savannah, this is really exciting. Well, you don't have to be a royal nerd to feel uh, the, the electricity of this moment and the privilege of witnessing it. That is the throne room inside St. James Palace, never before broadcast on live TV. And we know that in a moment, King Charles III, having officially been declared king, will take that throne for the very first time. And as I turn to Wilfred Frost, our NBC News contributor, it strikes me, this is a first, getting to have a camera inside that meeting, open to the public to see now. It was Queen Elizabeth who had the first televised coronation back in 1952. It, I, it's clearly a first, and we've been saying that uh, throughout the morning, and it is unbelievable to be seeing these pictures, as you said as well, to see this particular room. But I do find it interesting that we're saying it's the first time it's been televised ever. Another way of framing that is it was only ever not televised once, uh, because it, it reminds us of how long Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth's mm -hmm. reign was to go back 70 mm -hmm. years. It couldn't really have been televised before This is the first time that. there was the possibility of it. There was no television when she it, took it. it office, well, there just was once, and yes. then they did with the coronation, of course. But it. it's, it's a reminder of how long her reign was uh, and how unique this is for us all to, to see into this room. Um, also, of course, a reminder that when the funeral happens in about a week's time, it will be the first time a monarch's funeral has ever been televised and, and the, the hundreds of millions, if not billions of people that will watch that.
the first official state funeral since Winston Churchill, the Queen's will be. Uh, We've seen royal funerals, of course, Prince Philip, but that was not considered not a, a state not funeral. Not quite a state funeral, it was a ceremonial uh, funeral. So uh, exactly, uh, something of huge importance. Of course, one of the reasons in the past that we then had multiple days of, of mourning in between was to allow hundreds of thousands of people to visit London and pay their respects. We are in a different age now. That is happening, as, as we've seen throughout the last couple of days behind us. On top of that, people will be able to uh, mourn digitally, as, as would uh, be the case uh, in the modern day. Wilfred, you and I were here listening together as the King's speech was broadcast, and I know we both were struck by how warm a tone he struck, in particular, mm -hmm. with the memories of his mother, even referring to her as his darling mama. Well, absolutely, and I think, uh, you know, if we did a word count analysis of that speech last night, most of it was focused on this idea of duty, how brilliant his mother had been at delivering on it, how much he wanted to follow in those footsteps. But the bit that struck a tone was quite clearly that personal, emotional bit at the end. Today is slightly different. There will be some some reference, I imagine, towards that. But, you know, this is the formal proclamation where he becomes uh, king. So there's a, a greater formality to that. We need to bring in a historian. We've got Andrew Roberts uh, watching along with us, privileged to have him with us. And I was also so moved by the words that King Charles spoke of his mother, that she was a, a, pro a, a destiny, a promise of destiny kept. I thought that was so eloquent and so spoke to what she did when she was 21 years old as a princess saying that I pledge to you, the British people, whether my life be long or short, it shall be devoted to you. And King Charles picking up that mantle yesterday, citing that very speech, Andrew. That's right, yes, he, he cited the 40, 1947 speech. Uh, and of, of course, because she did stick to exactly what she promised to do, um, for the uh, for the 75 years after her 21st birthday, um, it set up beautifully. And, as, and you're completely right. It was poetic. Some of his speech uh, yesterday set up beautifully what he is going to do or what he intends to do, which is to continue that uh, that life of service. And uh, and I thought that uh, you're right. It was it was written beautifully. We are standing outside Buckingham Palace. What you're watching is St. James Palace, just a short walk away from here, but it can't be said enough. We are witnessing history, something we've never seen before, and history behind us unfolding as well as throngs of people, thousands, continue to pour in to lay letters, cards, poems, and flowers at the palace gates. We saw King Charles and Camilla, Queen Camilla, outside meeting some of the people yesterday, an unexpected visit. Today we expect to see them again outside here, walking amongst the people. We look into the room right now and think we're very close now to the speech that we will hear from King Charles as he addresses the nation formally as king, his coronation to come sometime later, so he won't yet wear that crown. But the weight of responsibility is certainly upon his shoulders, and it has been for several, several days now. And we watch the prime minister walk in. Uh, Liz Truss, I mean, I was wondering where, where she was earlier when we saw the former prime ministers. Obviously, she uh, has a much more elevated position. That's the Archbishop of Canterbury as well, the most senior uh, member of the church. And private in. audience is expected today with the king. So they are filing out, uh, I believe we see Queen Camilla there, Prince William, the Prince of Wales, and now the king. And those are the three members of the royal family who are also part of the Privy Council. Business for part two of the council. Your majesty to make your declaration. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, it is my most sorrowful duty to announce to you the death of my beloved mother, the queen. I know how deeply you, the entire nation, and I think I may say the whole world, sympathize with me in the irreparable loss we've all suffered. It is the greatest consolation to me to know of the sympathy expressed by so many to my sister and brothers, and that such overwhelming affection and support should be extended to our whole family in our loss. To all of us as a family, as to this kingdom and the wider family of nations of which it is a part, 
My mother gave an example of lifelong love and of selfless service. My mother's reign was unequaled in its duration, its dedication and its devotion. Even as we grieve, we give thanks for this most faithful life. I am deeply aware of this great inheritance and of the duties and heavy responsibilities of sovereignty, which have now passed to me. In taking up these responsibilities, I shall strive to follow the inspiring example I have been set in upholding constitutional government and to seek the peace, harmony and prosperity of the peoples of these islands and of the Commonwealth realms and territories throughout the world. In this purpose, I know that I shall be upheld by the affection and loyalty of the peoples whose sovereign I have been called upon to be, and that in the discharge of these duties, I will be guided by the counsel of their elected parliaments. In all this, I am profoundly encouraged by the constant support of my beloved wife. I take this opportunity to confirm my willingness and intention to continue the tradition of surrendering the hereditary revenues, including the Crown Estate, to my government for the benefit of all in return for the sovereign grant which supports my official duties as head of state and head of nation. And in carrying out the heavy task that has been laid upon me and to which I now dedicate what remains to me of my life, I pray for the guidance and help of Almighty God. I have with humble duty to crave your majesty's permission for the publication of your gracious speech. Approved. Concerning the security of the Church of Scotland. I understand that the law requires that I should, at my accession to the Crown, take and subscribe the oath relating to the security of the Church of Scotland. I am ready to do so at this first opportunity. I, Charles III, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of my other realms and territories, King, Defender of the Faith, do faithfully promise and swear that I shall inviolably maintain and preserve the settlement of the true Protestant religion as established by the laws made in Scotland in prosecution of the claim of right and particularly by an act intituled an act for securing the Protestant religion and Presbyterian church government and by the acts passed in the parliament of both kingdoms for union of the two kingdoms together with the government, worship, discipline, rights and privileges of the Church of Scotland. So help me God. I now invite Your Majesty to subscribe both copies of the instrument, confirming the oath has been taken.
I now invite the witnesses to His Majesty's oath to sign both copies of the instrument. <coughs> We've been watching as history unfolds this morning, King Charles III just addressing the Privy Council, now officially declared king. The signing of that official proclamation by witnesses, Prince William and Queen Consort Camilla. And now we're seeing an array of other council members sign the document. You see former British prime ministers assembled there to watch Wilfred Frost with me, and you recognize many of these faces who are signing this document this morning. So the first thing of significance, of course, is uh, that uh, the members of the royal family who are also in the Privy Council were the first to sign it, of course, the king himself. Uh, but uh, interesting that uh, the Queen Consort uh, was one of those people uh, there to sign it. The, the significance there is that the prior Queen appointed her to the Privy Council. Uh, and of course, uh, Elizabeth II really endorsed Camilla earlier this summer um, at her Jubilee when she released a statement to say it is my solemn wish that, that she would become Queen Consort. And that's why those three members of the royal family were there to sign it. Other people that have been forward, Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland, uh, we saw, of course, also, uh, uh, the Justice Secretary. In Let's listen in. Authorising Your Majesty's declaration to be made public. Approved. Draft of an order in Council for recording the oath relating to the security of the Church of Scotland to be transmitted to the Court of Session, to be recorded in the books of Sederant, and afterwards lodged in the State Papers of Scotland and in the Council Register. Approved. Draft order in Council determining the form of proclamation for proclaiming Your Majesty in the realms and in the British Overseas Territories. Approved. Draft of an order in Council authorising the Lord Chancellor to make use of the Great Seal for sealing all things whatsoever that pass the Great Seal until another Great Seal be prepared and authorised. Approved.
draft of an order in council authorising the Lord Privy Seal, if need be, to make use of the existing Privy Seal until another Privy Seal is prepared and authorised. Approved. Drafts of three orders in council authorising Your Majesty's Principal Secretaries of State, the Lord Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, to use the existing seals until other seals be prepared and authorised. Approved. Draft of an order in council authorising Your Majesty's Secretary of State for Northern Ireland to make use of the existing Great Seal of Northern Ireland until another seal be prepared and authorised. Approved. Draft of an order in council authorising Your Majesty's First Minister of Scotland to make use of the Great Seal of Scotland until another Great Seal of Scotland be prepared and authorised. Approved. Draft of an order in council authorising Your Majesty's First Minister of Wales to make use of the existing Welsh seal until another Welsh seal be prepared and authorised. Approved. Draft of an order in council authorising the public seals authorising the respective pub public seals lately in use elsewhere than in the United Kingdom to be made use of until new seals be prepared and their use duly authorised. Approved. Draft of an order in council confirming Your Majesty's wishes in relation to the Sovereign Grant Act 2011 to continue the tradition of surrendering the hereditary revenues, including the Crown Estate, to your government for the benefit of all, in return for the Sovereign Grant, which supports your official duties as Head of State and Head of Nation. Approved. Drafts of two proclamations. One, appointing the day of Her Late Majesty's State Funeral as a bank holiday in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Two, appointing the day of Her Late Majesty's State Funeral as a bank holiday in Scotland. And of two orders in council directing the Lord Chancellor to affix the Great Seal to the proclamations. Approved. I now invite Your Majesty to sign both proclamations. And that, Your Majesty, concludes today's business for the Council. May I now invite the deputation party and the witnesses to the oath to exit via the picture gallery and the matted hall. It's official now, King Charles III has ascended to the throne, an ancient ceremony witnessed for the first time by all, taking place in the throne room at St. James Palace. I now ask Penny Mordaunt, Lord President of the Council, presiding over it. She was appointed just four days ago. And as I turn to Andrew Roberts, British historian, we've all been marveling at the ability to, to witness this. And in a moment, we will hear the, this proclamation that we just heard 
read aloud outside the palace and later at Buckingham Palace itself. That's right. Garter, King of Arms, um, who dresses up like a um, like somebody you'd see on the uh, on the playing cards, is about to uh, officially proclaim uh, the king. Uh, that ceremony was ancient. A bit about the Scottish Church. Defending the Scottish Church goes back to 1714 with King George the First. The Scottish Church was under a bit of threat. Uh, back then. It clearly isn't now, but nonetheless, every monarch by law has to say, uh, give that oath. And um, and so most of it, in fact, uh, all the bit where he was approving one thing after the other, um, is just is just sort of formal business, of course. Uh, but it's still fascinating for historians like me to see uh, what goes on in the Privy Council. This is a classic example of modernising whilst at the same time keeping the tradition. And as my colleague Wilfred Frost pointed out, not only is it the first time it's been televised, it's essentially the first time it could have been televised, it, it, a testament to the 70-year reign of Queen Elizabeth, who, of course, went through this very procedure back in 1952. I want to turn to Daisy McAndrew, and let's talk about the Queen for a moment. I was struck by Prince Charles saying at the end that he would rely on the guidance of Almighty God. He is, of course, now the head of the Church of England and the Church of Scotland. But a word, Daisy, if you will, about the Queen's faith and its importance to her. The Queen's faith was absolutely crucial to who she was. And in fact, it was interesting, I think, today and yesterday, we heard that that has been passed down to her son, uh, the King, King Charles. The Queen's faith was not just something that uh, she found very comforting. I mean, I've spoken to people who, who worked very closely for her who said that she religiously said her prayers every single night before she went to bed. But also, she did look to God to guide her as a sovereign. And the church and the royal family you know, are completely intertwined. I mean, her ancestors and, and many people in this country firmly believed that the monarch was sent from God, was almost you know, a deity um, and was to be deferred to. Of course, there isn't that connection now, but still the royal family will go to church every Sunday um, and talk about faith. And of course, they are you know, the head, the, the titulary head of the Church of England. And you heard um, Andrew Roberts there talking about the situation in the Church of Scotland. So faith is incredibly important, was incredibly important to the Queen and is very important uh, to the King. And it's interesting because, of course, we are quite a secular society uh, in, in the UK these days. It's not as important as it was the Church, but it is uh, to the sovereign. And as we see members of the Privy Council sign their documents, the next order of business will take place outside St. James Palace at the Friary Court, where Charles will be officially proclaimed king by the Garter King of Arms, David White, according, also accompanied by the Earl Marshal, who I believe is the uncle of Wilfred Frost, who is sitting right next to me, and who Wilfred has been in charge of this ceremony. It's, it's known as Operation London Bridge, but literally for years. The morning, the plans, what we're about to see unfold in this country over the next 10 or so days has all been planned meticulously and, in fact, overseen by the Queen herself in some cases. Yeah, th this particular ceremony today, not uh, specifically his remit, though heavily involved. And in that first room, uh, he went up to, to sign the first proclamation, I noticed. So I was thinking to myself, I hope he's practiced his signature. This is an important one. Not a messy um, one you today. You don't want to get it wrong today. But, but no, I, and the, the, the state occasions themselves, particularly the funeral and the following coronation, uh, as you say, has been planning for ages. I also thought was quite interesting uh, in there that we heard it confirmed it will be a national holiday, a bank holiday, the day of the funeral. Everyone is expecting that to be confirmed for Monday the 19th. Uh, we still haven't had it formally confirmed, but on the agenda today for uh, His Majesty the King was also a meeting with the Dean of Westminster who will preside over the service in Westminster Abbey. So I imagine we'll get that date uh, formally confirmed uh, anytime soon. But yes, as you said, uh, those details of, of the whole of these 10 days of mourning and the funeral in particular have been in the works for, for, for a very long time. And the pageantry we are witnessing will unfold over these period of days, culminating in the Queen's state funeral. As mentioned, we do not have the official date. It is largely expected to be Monday, the, the 19th of September. We just saw some of the guns that will be saluted at 10 second intervals to mark the proclamation as King when it is read. A note about flags. There 
they're they're quite important here. We know the royal standard flies when the king is in residence here at Buckingham Palace. They're at half mast uh, to the morn the queen for this official period of mourning. But for a moment, for an hour today, after the proclamations are read, they will be flown at full mast to honor the naming of the new king. I want to turn to Keir Simmons, our international correspondent, to talk about this brief message we received from King Charles this morning. I was struck that I think once and perhaps even twice he referred to the, the heavy burden that he now picks up from his mother. I have thought often about that crown that they wear. I think it's said to be about five pounds, but the heaviness of that crown physically certainly matches the, the heaviness and the weight of the task before him. Yeah, it's a great metaphor, isn't it, Savannah? And I was thinking as I was watching that, isn't it incredible, the British Constitution? Because every one of those duties that King Charles agreed to, he could have said he doesn't agree to. But he doesn't, because that is the tradition. And that is the essence of the unwritten British Constitution and the, the reason why it works. But for the person at the centre of it, the king, the sovereign, the monarch, and until just a few days ago, uh, the queen, as you say, it, it is a, a huge burden. You know, I thought it was just so special to get that glimpse of that ancient tradition there. It looked in the wide shot, didn't it, like, like a kind of 19th century uh, painting, the, the kind of moment that a great prime minister like Gladstone or Disraeli uh, would have recognised, except, of course, it's so rare that they, as prime minister, never got to take part in uh, a moment like that because Queen Victoria reigned for so long. Just think about it. The last prime minister who was prime minister when something like this happened uh, was uh, Winston Churchill. And then you saw uh, Prince William standing to the side. He must have been looking on and thinking, the next time this happens, he, he will have been wanting to take notes, <laughs> to pay close attention, because he will have been thinking, the next time this happens, uh, this will be me. And, and he has no idea when uh, that will happen. And of course, uh, we now uh, hope very much that King Charles will reign for a good deal of time, for, for a long time. So uh, what, what a moment. I, I think, too, just to, to, to talk about the importance of television with, with the royal family, uh, and Wilfred was talking touching on this, just to remember uh, that, in fact, uh, television has not been around for as long as uh, this uh, ceremony uh, has. But the royal family, by King Charles agreeing to this ceremony uh, being filmed, they, they are extending a relationship with what was once called moving pictures that goes back to the beginning of moving pictures. So Queen Victoria, who I mentioned earlier, her Diamond Jubilee uh, was, was recorded. Out, her carriage outside St Paul's Cathedral was recorded. So it's interesting, isn't it, that we are, and I've said this again and again, we're watching history happen. We've been watching history happen with the royals since we were able to, since moving pictures were invented. And, and, and step by step, very slowly, they have allowed the cameras in, but they have to be very careful. Uh, and that's why I thought uh, the King Charles's speech was, was so fascinating, uh, so personal, uh, talking in such personal terms about his mum, about his wife, uh, uh, Queen Consort Camilla. I thought it was fascinating because they've made mistakes in the past, letting the, in their view, letting the cameras in too much. Uh, as one uh, famous constitutionalist once said, letting light in on the magic. So it's a very, very cautious relationship with us, the public, uh, through television, uh, but another step taken today. Indeed, and the royals also famously invited documentary cameras into the palace, into everyday life of the royals back in the 60s, perhaps uh, one of the first reality shows before they were as common as they are now. And I'll turn to Andrew Roberts on this question because it is a delicate dance, as Keir has laid out. Uh, preserving an air of mystery about the royal family, but also being accessible enough to be relevant to the public. That's right. And the 1968 documentary was very controversial at the time. A lot of people thought that it wasn't right to uh, watch the royal family have picnics at Balmoral and chatting amongst themselves and uh, be dressed in, uh, in normal, uh, ordinary clothes rather than... Uh, rather than formally, you know, it was, a, it was a big move back in the 60s. Today, of course, you take that kind of thing entirely for granted. Um, but there is a, a risk involved because you don't want uh, too much familiarity to the point that it might breed um, contempt. And that's why 
kings don't give interviews. Uh, the queen didn't give interviews. Um, the uh, 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 queen consort uh, has never given an interview. And actually, that's the way that they attempt to uh, preserve their um, their dignity. And the, the people who have given interviews, uh, Prince Andrew, of course, classically, but also uh, Prince Charles once and uh, uh, and some others have lived to regret it. So uh, so there is an argument. I, it's terrible to say this on television, but not letting the daylight in upon that. Yes, the assembled journalists here, of course, will disagree with you, Andrew, but your point is well well taken. And, of course, not doing interviews it, it preserves their ability to stay neutral on the hot-button issues of the day, which, of course, they would certainly be asked about. While we watch this unfold, and we are going to see this gun salute and the official proclamation in just a moment, I want to turn to NBC's senior national con correspondent, Tom Yamas, who's in Edinburgh, Scotland, for us, where, of course, there are ceremonies taking place, the Queen dying in Balmoral, her beloved country home and Tom there are ceremonies expected there as well her body still in the, the country of Scotland but will come to London in a few days that's right Savannah and right now this capital city of Scotland is preparing for possibly what may be its biggest day in modern history and that that could take place as early as tomorrow when we expect the the hearse carrying the Queen's coffin to leave Balmoral Castle and make its way down here to Edinburgh taking sort of an eastern then southern route and then here she will go down the Royal Mile which is essentially the the mile from uh, the, the palace here at Edinburgh to the Holyrood house which is the official residence of the Queen in Scotland there we we are also expecting the royal family, including the king, to have a vigil, to, to, to be with her, uh, to pay their respects. And then after that, shortly after that, we are expecting thousands of people to be lining the streets to see the coffin in the hearse be taken over to St. Giles Cathedral, which is just over my shoulder here. And that will be, we think, the first time the public will actually be able to get up close to the coffin and to pay their respects. Um, so because of that, the security preparations underway here are massive. There are entire sections just behind me in Old Town, um, Edinburgh, that have, have been completely shut down, barricades, lots of police, because they are expecting so many people here. I mean, there are tourists here always because this is such a popular city for visitors, but now people are going to be coming here because really this is going to be the first place the public will be able to pay their respects and be close to, to the Queen's body, at least for a short time period. After that, and she will be guarded the entire time, after that she is going to make her way towards London, but, but tomorrow possibly could be a momentous, a powerful, and very very emotional day here in Edinburgh, Savannah. All right, Tom, stand by there. We will come back to you as we await some of the pageantry and pomp that is going to unfold here in London. We've seen just here in Buckingham Palace in the last few minutes uh, uh, soldiers on horseback in traditional gear. We see outside St. James Palace, I believe, uh, some similar. And we're waiting that official reading of the proclamation of Charles as king. That will be followed by gun salutes in Hyde Park and elsewhere around this country. There is an audible buzz every time anybody goes by here in Buckingham Palace with us, Wilfred. Absolutely. So those, uh, we'll be hearing the trumpeters from the lifeguards and uh, the drums played by the Coldstream Guards. I think what's really interesting as well, we haven't had the proclamation publicly, loudly, uh, on the balcony yet. And in, in centuries past, that would have been the first indication of it uh, to the public, of course, because uh, the cameras uh, wouldn't have been inside. I thought it was really interesting what, what uh, you and Keir were discussing as well about that sense of duty in the middle of uh, his his speech. Uh, Charles uh, saying he has a heavy task laid upon him. And the longer he can maintain that sense uh, that being king uh, is a job, is a duty, the greater his approval ratings will be. This uh, last couple of days has refocused that sense of duty of the role uh, because of the great way that Her Majesty carried it out. But in, in, in normal years, five years ago, ten years ago, of course, people then start to focus again on the grandeur, the wealth, uh, the luxury, and, and could possibly raise the question of why we continue in this day and age to have these sorts of things. So I think uh, in, the, in the years ahead, that'll be something he's going to really try and continue to get people to focus on. Live pictures now of the Friary Court at St. James Palace in central London. And if we take the wide shot, you'll see a window. And we know the royals and their balconies. Uh, this balcony will feature King Charles in just a moment as the proclamation is read. And then the gun salutes from the Tower of London, Hyde Park. Uh, we will also hear the proclamations read in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales, the British territories and realms. Uh, uh, of course, key to these formal moments 
as King Charles is officially named monarch, taking over for Queen Elizabeth, who reigned for 70 years. And it's astonishing to think that these ceremonies, steeped in history as they are, have not happened in seven decades. And as we've been observing, many of the people you see on your screen, many of the prime ministers and other dignitaries in attendance, in fact, weren't alive the last time this Privy Council and a session council was held, a testament to the long reign of Queen Elizabeth. As we continue to watch these images unfold, I want to turn to Daisy McAndrew, and we've talked a little bit about this, but I, again, was struck by the warmth and loving tone and the way that King Charles has singled out his wife, Camilla, in both of his public remarks since becoming king. We know that Queen Elizabeth, in one of her last acts during her Platinum Jubilee, essentially gave the stamp of approval to Camilla, saying she should be queen consort. Uh, an astonishing journey that this couple has been on. You're so right, Savannah. If you cast your mind back to when Princess Diana was still alive, of course, Camilla, well, she was enemy number one as far as the public was concerned, as far as uh, the tabloids and the newspapers and journalists was concerned, particularly when Diana gave that, you know, that interview saying there are three of us in this marriage. Fast forward to today, uh, to you know, King Charles's official proclamation, and she really has become quite loved in this country. I mean, she's only a couple of percentage points if you look at the latest opinion polls of popularity of members of the royal family. She's only now a couple of percentage points behind her husband, King Charles. Now, having said that, William is streets ahead um, of his father, and the Queen herself, of course, was the most popular by far. But I think she will continue to grow in the affections of the British public as we see her really supporting her husband and making him a better king than I believe he would have been without her by his side. She, she's known for having a very good sense of humor, rather like her mother-in-law. Daisy, let's listen as the heralders proclaim the new king.
50 seconds. It is pleased Almighty God to call to his mercy our late Sovereign Lady, Queen Elizabeth II, of blessed and glorious memory, by whose decease the Crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is solely and rightfully come to the Prince Charles Philip Arthur George. We, therefore, the Lord's spiritual and temporal of this realm, and members of the House of Commons, together with other members of Her Late Majesty's Privy Council, and representatives of the realms and territories, aldermen and citizens of London and others, do now hereby, with one voice and consent of tongue and heart, publish and proclaim that the Prince Charles Philip Arthur George is now, by the death of our late Sovereign of happy memory, become our only lawful and rightful liege Lord, Charles III. By the grace of God, of the United Kingdom, of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of his other realms and territories, King, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, to whom we do acknowledge all faith and obedience with humble affection, beseeching God, by whom kings and queens do reign, to bless his majesty with long and happy years to reign over us. Given at St. James's Palace this 10th day of September in the year of our Lord, 2022. The shots ring out across London in an image broadcast around the world for the very first time. The United Kingdom has a new king. It is Charles III, and it is now official by proclamation and now by gun salute across from Hyde Park to the Tower of London Three to across the realms Majesty and territories. The king. Hip, hip. 
and we heard the national anthem, God Save the King. And now by tradition, the word goes out. A second proclamation will be read a few moments from now at the City of London at the Royal Exchange. And tomorrow, that proclamation read in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. And those delivering that message known as heralders, hearkening back to a time when this word would have gone out by horseback, by a sign posted at the gates of Buckingham Palace. And now, in a feat of modern technology, is broadcast to the world, live streamed for all to see. And if you didn't hear the news, you would hear the news across the city of London and beyond Wilfred Frost by the 41 and in some cases 62 gun salutes that continue to unfold behind us. And it was great to hear them actually happening in Hyde Park, you and I, before the feed came through as well, because uh, it's so so close by and so, so loud. They go to Royal Exchange in the city of London, that's our Wall Street area first, because it was an area where so much international trade took place, so they can get the word out uh, all over the world as, as quickly as possible. And all of what we've seen, Savannah, in the last hour or so is a great example of our odd constitutional process and you can look at it and think it's ridiculous or you can look at it and think it's wonderful I very much happy happen to be in the second part of that 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 uh, category but either way it's actually very important it is necessary for our constitutional process most people in this country based on all opinion polls in, in recent years still want it to continue but it does rest on one key factor of course uh, this is ceremonial these days uh, and therefore is able to be embraced by the people uh, and all actual power sits in the democratically elected uh, House of Commons, of course, and, and, uh, and, and that's important. We've, we've heard reference to the government uh, during Charles's speeches as well. Well, if you are up early with us this morning, you have had the privilege of witnessing history, something never before seen or broadcast on live television, as King Charles III is formally proclaimed monarch. There are other events scheduled today, including another walkabout, as they say here, here at Buckingham Palace, where he will greet some of the thousands of mourners who have come to show their love, leave cards, lay flowers, and pay respects to Queen Elizabeth II, who led this country for seven decades. That concludes our coverage for the moment of the accession ceremony for King Charles. We will see later, uh, later, we will see most of you for Saturday today as well as throughout the day on MSNBC and NBC News Now. For now, though, this is Savannah Guthrie and this has been an NBC News special report. He would lie his way into their dreams. He was looking for James Bond girls. How fun would that be to be a Bond girl? then twist them into a nightmare. This guy has done this before, he'll do it again. Until a group of women banded together to put him behind bars and keep him there. You have to participate fiercely, fiercely in what happens next. I'm Keith Morrison, and this is Murder in the Hollywood Hills, an all new podcast from Dateline. All episodes of Murder in the Hollywood Hills are available now. To listen ad-free, subscribe to Dateline Premium on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or DatelinePremium.com.